The kings of England occupied a slightly strange place in medieval France. You need to understand that nation-states in the way that we understand them now in the 21st century were not a concept that existed in the same form in the early Middle Ages. Kings would grant lands to powerful magnates who would rule those areas with a considerable degree of autonomy. And in return, they would pay homage to the king and owe the king allegiance. Normandy is a case in point. History in a nutshell here. Viking raiders from Scandinavia had ravaged large parts of Europe in the past. Uh, in England, we tend to see the Viking raids as something quite unique to England, or maybe at least the British Isles. But Vikings didn't just limit themselves to the British Isles. They were raiders. They were raiding into modern-day Russia, uh, down into the Mediterranean, even attacking Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, at about the same time as Alfred the Great was desperately trying to hold them off from running out, uh, overrunning England. And just as the English resorted to paying a Danegeld or treasure to buy a peace, so rulers elsewhere gave them land. And one such Viking beneficiary of this land for peace deal was Rollo, who was a Viking leader who was allowed to settle in the lands around the mouth of the River Seine by the King of France. And in return, Rollo paid the king homage, or at least that's what he was supposed to do anyway. This, this area of land, Normandy, and its Viking descendants and rulers, the Dukes of Normandy, are a classic example of just how much autonomy these localised rulers had. Because in 1066, one of Rollo's descendants, William, conducted an invasion of England without any reference to the King of France. And so, now we had William, Duke of Normandy, a vassal of the King of France, getting a kingdom in his own right. And now we had this, this dual role for the kings of England, and this dual role for the kings of England caused tensions. You know, as kings of their own realm, England, which was every bit as rich and powerful as France, they resented paying homage for their French lands to the French king. By the time of the Plantagenet, the early Plantagenet rulers of England, their, their Angevin empire stretched from Hadrian's Wall uh, in, on the English-Scottish border down to the Pyrenees, separate, separating France from, from Spain. England and large parts of Wales and Ireland were under their direct control, answerable to nobody. Meanwhile, a huge swathe of France was ruled by them, but as vassals to the French king, who at this time actually had less land in France under his direct control than the Plantagenets did. By the time Henry II's great-grandson, Edward III, sat on the English throne, these tensions were reaching a boiling point. That in itself could have given cause for a war between the kings of France and England. And indeed, over the years since King John, Edward's grandfather's reign, the French kings had successfully been taking, taking lands off their, their Plantagenet vassals. But in 1337, another equally, if not more, dangerous situation had developed. It centred around who should be the king of France itself. Philip IV of France was Richard the Lionheart's contemporary, fellow crusader, and indeed rival. And when he died, the throne went to his eldest son, Louis X. Louis died just two years later, and his wife was pregnant at the time. As there were no pregnancy scans at this time, no one knew if his unborn child would be a girl or a boy. Louis's brother, Philip, was appointed regent, and he declared that following the Salic uh, rules on inheritance, if the baby was a boy, it would be king. 
But under that Salic law, a girl could not inherit the throne. And so he, Uncle Philip, would therefore be king. Five months later, somewhat bizarrely, later the, uh, the, the widowed queen gave birth to a boy who was proclaimed King John I of France. Uncle Philip would continue as regent until the, the boy king came of age, but the crown would not be his. Five days later, baby King John died. And so the crown did indeed pass to Uncle Philip, who became Philip V of France. But by introducing the Salic law into the line of succession, Philip had opened a Pandora's box that couldn't now be closed. Because when he died, leaving only daughters, guess what? The nobles and churchmen applied Salic law and passed the crown over the heads of his girls to Philip and Louis' younger brother, the 28-year-old Charles, Charles IV. After a six-year reign, Charles died, leaving just a daughter. This is, this is like a farce, isn't it? And the House of Capet, which had ruled France for over 300 years, had run out of male heirs. Or had it? Because Charles, Philip and Louis had a sister, Isabella. Isabella had married Edward II of England. The son of Edward I, the conqueror of Wales, victor over Simon de Montfort at Evesham and Hammer of the Scots. Unfortunately, Edward II did not possess his father's martial abilities, as was proved when his army was decisively crushed by the Scots at Bannockburn. Now, if you've had the misfortune to see the film Braveheart, uh, in that film, Isabella has an affair with William Wallace. A load of Hollywood nonsense. Uh, but she did indeed have an affair with an English nobleman, Roger Mortimer, and together they deposed her husband. Edward II abdicated in favour of his young teenage son, Edward III, and he died shortly afterwards. Anyway, Edward III of England, using English succession laws where the crown could pass through a daughter, as indeed had happened when Henry II had inherited the throne through his mother, Matilda, now claimed the throne of France as King Philip IV's grandson. The French nobility disagreed. They were following a different inheritance rules, the Salic rules, which debarred the crown passing through Isabella because she was not entitled to be in the line of succession. Therefore, neither was her son. In their view, Edward had no claim. And anyway, he was English. The French therefore proclaimed uh, Philip IV's nephew, also a Philip, just to be confusing, as king instead, Philip VI of France. And there matters might have grudgingly rested until the new king, Philip VI, decided uh, to retake uh, his lands in Gascony, uh, which is the area of France from sort of Bordeaux down to the Pyrenees, from his vassal who refused to pay him homage for those lands, a certain Edward King of England. Edward III was not his father. His response was the same as you would have expected from his granddad, Edward Longshanks. He decided on war and for good measure, he reiterated his claim to the French throne. It was a claim that kings of England indeed would not give up until the French Revolution. And that's why you see the French fleur-de-lis on coats of arms of the Tudors and the Stuarts and indeed the Hanoverians. And so started the Hundred Years' War, which was to last until the 1450s and encompass the reigns of five English kings. The Hundred Years' War, rather like a football match, was almost a, a game of two halves. The first half belonged to England 
and the second half decisively to France. It produced three of England's most famous military victories over the French, Crécy, Poitiers and Agincourt. And at the end, it was to produce a radically different England and indeed sense of Englishness. In 1340, Edward sent a fleet across the English Channel to protect the trade route to Flanders. Uh, Flanders, which is now sort of effectively part of, of mainly part of, of, uh, of Belgium, a little bit of northern France. Um, the, the Flemish weaving industry was a main export market for England's wool industry. Indeed, wool exports to Flanders were so important that Edward um, declared that his Lord Chancellor would sit on a wool sack in Parliament. And to this day, the Speaker of the House of Lords sits on a wool sack rather than in a chair. All these years later. At the Battle of Sluys, off the present sort of Dutch-Belgium coastline, Edward's defeat with the sun behind them and the tide running with them encountered the French fleet. In a battle that sort of mirrored later land battles, the English ships carrying longbow archers rained havoc on their opponents. And at the end of the day, the 24th of June 1340, the French had lost 190 ships, 166 of which were captured, and over 15,000 men. England, Edward's English fleet had lost just two ships in return. So having secured England's export market and consequently the revenues he needed to wage his ambitious war on France, Edward invaded France in July 1346. But the, the French were effectively playing at home and King Philip could muster a much bigger army than his English rival. Outmaneuvered, Edward and his invading army were cornered at Crecy in northwest France on the 26th of August. Outnumbering the English two to one, Philip allowed his army to attack before it was properly formed up. And in an eager but chaotic charge, the French raced towards their numerically inferior foes. But what Edward III lacked in numbers, he made up for in organization. And in particular, his new super weapon, the English longbow. Skilled English longbowmen could fire uh, arrows at the rate of about 10 a minute and could hit a target 300 yards away. And into this mass of arrows rode the French knights. 4,000 of them never came back, including 1,500 French nobles. Cressy ranks as one of the greatest English victories over the French of all time. But despite the success, Edward was not able to turn it to a decisive advantage. Not least because England was now having to fight a war on, on two fronts. Back in 1295, France had signed a treaty with the Scots, agreeing that they would support each other if England ever attacked one of them. And it was now time for the Scots to honour what had become known or what became known as the Old Alliance. As Edward basked in his victory at Cressy, across England's border, northern border, came a huge Scottish army. Led by their king, King David, it was comparable in size to the very army that Edward himself had in France. Sweeping south, they arrived at the great northern cathedral city of Durham. And there at Neville's Cross, which is now a sort of a suburb of Durham, standing in their way was a pitifully small English army, just half their size. But just as at Cressy, English had longbows. And just as at Cressy, they were lethal. The Scots were scattered and worst of all, well, worst of all for them anyway, their king was, day, uh, was captured. David was to spend the next 11 years in captivity. It was another 10 years before there was another major battle in the Hundred Years' War between England and France. 
By now, Philip VI of France had died and his son, John II, was sitting on the throne of France. This time, it was King Edward's son and namesake, Edward the Black Prince, who was raiding across northern France on his father's behalf. And once again, the English invaders were cornered by a French army, this time at Poitiers. Once again, they were outnumbered, about 15,000 French versus about 6,000 English. And once more, it was the English longbow that was to play a decisive uh, part in the battle. The French were to lose over a quarter of their army in an almost carbon copy replay of Cressy. And amidst all this carnage, King John himself was captured by the English. And so we had this quite interesting moment in history where the English had the leaders of both, uh, both the leaders of the old alliance as their prisoners. Uh, but David was shortly to be released and, and ransomed back to Scotland. John, however, was to remain a prisoner in England for the next four years. With supremacy on the battlefield, but unable to capture any major fortified towns such as Reims, the, uh, the traditional coronation venue of the kings of France, or Paris itself, Edward settled for a treaty in 1360, which confirmed his hold on an enlarged Gascony in southwest France. And as part of that treaty, uh, a ransom was agreed for King John, and he returned to France, leaving his son as a hostage while he rustled up the ransom money uh, payments. Three years later, a bizarre event happened. His son escaped from captivity and arrived safe and, uh, safe and sound back in France. Woohoo! In an age of chivalry, John was crestfallen. He had given his word to the King of the English to pay the crippling ransom and had left his son in English hands as a mark of good faith. And now his son had broken that honour. What was he to do? To the dismay of his advisers and French nobles, he chose to surrender himself back to the English. And King John of France arrived in London almost like a hero's welcome. But shortly afterwards, he actually died in London. Within 10 years, both the Black Prince and King Edward III himself had passed away. And there was a sort of a lull as, uh, in the war as the English under the child king, Richard II, focused on the internal matters of, of the Black Death, the Peasants' Revolt, and indeed growing opposition to his own style of government. In 1399, Richard was deposed by his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, who became Henry IV, the first of the House of Lancaster. And therein were sown the seeds for the Wars of the Roses. But that is for another story. In 1413, Henry died and was succeeded by his son, Prince Hal. Enter one of England's most famous warrior kings, partly due to one of England's most famous victories over France, and also due to the works of one William Shakespeare, Henry V. Within two years, Henry V had reignited the war with France, and after laying siege to Harfleur in, uh, in Normandy, which held out for a lot longer than he had anticipated, Henry moved his army across country, aiming to reach the safety of English-controlled Calais. On the 25th of October, 1415, he found his route of, to safety blocked by, the, by a huge French army near the village of Agincourt. Henry's army was somewhere between maybe six and 8,000, and it was outnumbered two to one by the French. However, over three quarters of his army consisted of English longbowmen. The cream of the French nobility were mounted uh, along with their knights, charged down the hillside towards the English line that stood behind sharpened wooden poles placed at an angle to try and deter horses from jumping. And as they charged, 
something like 4,000 English archers let fly. Within three seconds, 4,000 arrows travelling at something like 150 miles an hour hit the French knights. Four seconds later, the next wave of arrows hit them, and then another, and then another. The French knights had been met by the equivalent of a medieval machine gun. It was carnage. It was estimated that something like 6,000 Frenchmen, including about 40% of their nobility, nearly half their nobility, died on the field at Agincourt. Henry lost indeed about 10th of his men, about 600, including his cousin, the Duke of York. And the ducal title, uh, Duke of York, passed to his nephew, Richard, who would eventually challenge Henry's son for the crown of England in the Wars of the Roses, but again for another day. In the resulting treaty um, following Agincourt, the ageing French king, Charles VI, recognised Henry as ruler of Normandy. Once more, Normandy was under English rule after a 200-year gap. He also agreed to the English king marrying his daughter, Catherine. And more importantly, he agreed that when he died, Henry, or his heirs, would inherit the French throne rather than his son, the Dauphin. This was the high point of England, for England, in the Hundred Years' War. Within seven years, Henry lay dead, and his infant son, Henry VI, was King of England. Oh, incidentally, just as an aside, the widowed Catherine of France, Henry's, uh, Henry's ex-wife, went on to marry a Welsh noblewoman at the London court by the name of Owen Tudor. Whilst the young Henry VI was crowned King of France at Notre Dame in Paris, the only English king ever to be crowned King of France as well, he was unable to secure his inheritance. The French nobles instead rallied to the Dauphin, who was proclaimed King Charles VII of France. And Charles VII is also known as Charles the Victorious, which sort of suggests what happens next in our story. <laughs> By 1430, um, less than a decade later, Joan of Arc had won a stunning victory over the English at Orleans, and despite her capture and subsequent execution, the momentum was now firmly with the French. By 1449, they'd retaken all of Normandy, and in 1451, they finally captured Bordeaux, the capital of English-controlled Gascony. Despite briefly winning back the city, the English were decisively defeated at the Battle of Castillon in 1453, where the French deployed cannon with devastating effect on the English. The English king had lost all of his French lands, except for the port of Calais which stayed English until the reign of Mary Tudor. Two years later, the Wars of the Roses had broken out, and Henry VI kissed goodbye to any attempt to ever recover the Angevin Empire in France. The Hundred Years' War shaped England as a modern nation-state. For the first time since 1066, the kings of England had no material interest in France. From now on, their sole focus was on the British Isles. By default, this was also to shape, of course, uh, modern Britain, because now England's relationship with, with Scotland as well as Ireland uh, was to change. Uh, and the wars, of course, also shaped modern France into a nation-state as well. As the French became to be seen as a sort of like a permanent enemy during the Hundred Years' War, and as the English kings and nobility lost their land interests in France, so French as a language fell out of favour. And what, of course, was also happening was the, the, the English aristocracy and nobility were now marrying each other rather than anyone in France. So again, French was falling out of fashion. Henry IV was the first English king since 1066 to speak English as his mother tongue. 
and indeed he was the first to take the coronation oath in English too. Henry V, his son Victor of Agincourt, was the first English king to write in English. By the end of the Hundred Years' War, Parliament was conducting its business in English. Shortly after Cressy, Edward III had created the Order of the Garter, which to this day is still the highest order of chivalry in England. Um, Edward adopted as the badge of the Order of the Garter the Cross of St George, and the Garter Order of the Garter met in the Chapel of St George at Windsor Castle. And with that, he proclaimed St George to be the patron saint of England. By Agincourt, the cult of St George had been cemented into the English sense of nationhood. The Hundred Years' War produced three of England's greatest military victories over France. But really, its greatest legacy was a sense of English national identity, which was to shape the world in the centuries ahead.